Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to know Christ. We want to glory in Jesus Christ. We don't want anything else to get in the way. And Father, we ask that you would help us this day. Just as I prayed earlier, that you would help us uh, to, uh, for our hearts to be quieted, for our distractions to be removed. Father, you are a good and gracious God. You have revealed your Son to us. You revealed yourself to us and made a way to be redeemed to you. And so, Father, I pray once again that you would remove distractions from us. Lord, I pray that, that the words uh, that I uh, preach, and the heart, my attitude, uh, would be acceptable to you and would uh, indeed be the words you have for us today and that each of us would receive that word with joy and gladness as a gift from you. And so, Father, we ask now that you would set our hearts upon your Son and his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, I was uh, when I was a, a young child, I had a piggy bank. It actually wasn't a piggy bank. It was kind of a a thing that one might call a coin purse. But I, of course, would not have a coin purse as a young boy. But it was probably a coin purse that I picked up at uh, an amusement park. And uh, I remember getting it and being so excited uh, that that would be where I would collect my money. And my mom gave me a few pennies to get started on my new collection. And from that moment on, I was, my eyes were out looking for pennies everywhere I went. Uh, and so, but what you have to remember is that this was a long time ago when people used cash, and so they would receive change. So there'd be pennies everywhere. So I hoped, right? But it wasn't always the case. But I was actually pretty impressed with myself uh, because my collection grew quickly. And I remember counting out my pennies on my floor over and over. It seemed like every day that's what I'd do uh, at least once or twice. And every once in a while, I'd find a nickel or a dime, put that in there, put that to the side. And one day, my brother saw me counting out my money, and um, by then, I think I had reached 93 pennies in my collection. Uh, and so I asked him if he had any pennies that he didn't want, and he said he would check. And so he went to his room, and then he came back, and he had eight pennies, eight pennies. Eight pennies would put me over 100 which like is a whole dollar. But he offered to trade me. He said he would give his eight pennies for one of my quarters. I thought about that. I'm like, that is not a good deal. Because grandpa gave me that quarter. And so it had sentimental value to me. <laughs> Fine, he said, and he walked away. But no, no, wait, I said, wait. And by the way, not all the details of the story are probably true. I don't remember, but this is what I think happened. I said, wait, because I wanted to get up to a dollar. I said, well, what will you trade me for? What else besides the quarter? He said, well, what about those three dirty dimes for my eight pennies? And I was like, all right, no problem. That will put me over a dollar. And I think it was at this point that my mother overheard what we were talking about. And she stopped the exchange See, the problem was I didn't understand what I had. I didn't understand the value of my coins that were in my collection. I say collection. I was just collecting them because I didn't know what to, I wanted to make a lot of money. And I thought pennies was the way to go. <laughs> but because I didn't know the value of what I had, it was, it was very easy 
for my brother to come along and trick me. I didn't understand that the dirt on the dimes didn't take away from uh, their value. I didn't understand that, that, that the dimes were much more valuable than the pennies. And so I traded away 30 cents so that I could get eight. It's kind of the opposite of uh, the pearl of great price, isn't it? And yet I think it's something that we find ourselves doing. Trading things uh, of God that are, are of immense value for the things of this world that are of little value. In our passage last week, we highlighted the preeminence of Christ over all things, that Jesus holds supremacy over creation. He holds supremacy over the church, and over salvation. There's no one greater, there's nothing greater, more powerful, more able to save in all of creation. And the hope of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection, he brings forgiveness for our sins, our greatest debt. He brings reconciliation between God and ourselves, right? Our greatest need. Christ's work is sufficient to save. It is truly enough. We don't need Jesus plus something else. Through the gospel, God brings about the great transformation, as Paul described it, of his children, delivering them from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And now in our passage, we move uh, to uh, yet another section where Paul then is, con- is uh, focusing on his own ministry. In our passage this morning, Paul describes within that the glory of the gospel in, in yet another way. He describes it as Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul has just held up Christ, uh, and now he reflects on his own ministry, a ministry that he says Christ has called him to to make others know him. And as we read, as Norm read for us from Acts 9, Paul was called to bring the glorious message of this gospel to the Gentiles, which was unheard of. And in our text, Paul highlights how this gospel-centered ministry to the Colossians displays the riches of God's glory in a way that hadn't been, maybe before, before God opened up the gospel. Gospel ministry is colored and shaped by the gospel, at least it's supposed to be, right? Our ministry, a gospel ministry, should be shaped by the gospel. And it will look different than a ministry that's shaped and colored by maybe our own desires or our own culture. Gospel-centered ministry displays the greatness of God. It's the very thing that we aim to do here at our church. But culture-shaped ministry tends to take on the flavor of the world around us, the flavor of our surroundings. The appeal of culture-shaped ministry is that it, it tends to be more comfortable and it always seems to make much of us. And so we have to make sure that we don't lose sight of the infinite value, the infinite treasure and worth of God's glory displayed in the gospel. And so in our text, we find four ways that that gospel-centered ministry displays the riches of God's glory. And so as Paul reflects on his own ministry, we learn about ministry in general, specifically gospel-centered ministry. And so the first thing we see is that gospel-centered ministry displays the riches of God's glory through suffering for the sake of the gospel. Suffering for the sake of the gospel. So Paul opens up his testimony uh, by telling the Colossian believers that he rejoices in his suffering for their sake. So he's suffering for their sake. Right? So he doesn't just like rejoice in suffering in general, right? as if it itself, in and of itself, was a virtue. 
but he rejoices in suffering for their sake and for the sake of the church. We see in verse 24, Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. In our text, Paul describes uh, himself as a minister, and the, the word that he uses there is actually a servant of Christ, called according to the stewardship from God that Paul knew, uh, and, and Paul knew that suffering was, was a part of that ministry. Acts 9.16, right? Jesus said, For I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. And so, as a servant of Christ, Paul expected to suffer. But he found joy in the midst of suffering. So, not just, hey, Paul, your life is going to be really lousy. And you want to know why, Paul? Is because you made life really lousy for a lot of people. Right? These Christians who had embraced Christ, right, you made their life horrible. And so now, as a repayment, I will make your life horrible. Now, that wasn't what God was saying. That's not what God is saying here. He's saying that, that he would suffer not to make payment for his own sins, but to make much of Christ. He would reflect Christ in his own sufferings. So uh, Paul found joy in the midst of suffering because it reflected his Savior. And even though it was uh, toilsome, tiring work, even though it was accomplishing, it, uh, that, even though it accomplished by suffering and affliction, that ministry, and even though it was difficult, right, it was worth the struggle. Paul knew the great value that that, uh, God had called him to, that Christ had called him to. He would suffer for the sake of others that they might know this great treasure that Paul had found. So why was Paul joyful in the midst of the suffering? It was the answer, the reward and the treasure that Paul found. The Paul was working toward it. It was the treasure of, of the glory of God being shared with others through the gospel, of being a messenger of the gospel that God uses to transfer people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, of, of seeing the glory of God spread as the church grows and spreads to the ends of the earth. Paul got to be part of that. Was that worth the, the suffering? Yeah, it was. And Paul says, right, in, in Romans 8.18, he says, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul knew that even if he sold everything he had, that pearl of great price, that pearl was worth so much more. All of us, uh, on some level, are willing to suffer and sacrifice, at least to some extent, for either something or someone that we treasure and love. It's, we see it in our, our lives all the time, right? Mothers are willing to wake up in the night, throughout the night, to care, comfort, and feed a newborn child. Committed gardeners, I use that word committed in there, right? Committed gardeners will spend hours battling mosquitoes and the heat to weed and tend their gardens for the treasure of the produce, right? It's, it's, what they love. It's what they are committed to. It's what they treasure. Why? Right? Because the treasure is worth the cost and the suffering. We'll work hard and endure suffering for the things that we love. I think about just a few more examples. Right? Maybe you will joyfully sacrifice your money to buy tickets to go see your favorite football team. Maybe you will sacrifice your sleep to keep up on social media. Maybe you will sacrifice your family to get ahead on your job. Maybe you will sacrifice your integrity to keep a sin hidden. 
Hmm. That doesn't seem to be the same thing, though, does it? Right? Perhaps it's too much to call those examples of joyful sacrifice. It certainly isn't the same kind of suffering. That's self-inflicted suffering, perhaps, right? And in fact, those, those examples demonstrate not how much we're willing to, to sacrifice for others, but how much we're willing to sacrifice to get what we want. And often what we're sacrificing is not ourselves, but we're sacrificing others and other people. But gospel-centered ministries willing to suffer and sacrifice for the sake of others to bring about not what they want, but what God wants, to make Christ known, to bring glory to him. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did as he suffered to follow God's will? Suffering for the sake of the gospel for the sake of others, shows that the riches of God's glory in the gospel are, are a greater treasure than our comfort, our independence, having our own needs met. And so when we suffer for Christ, it shows that we have an eternal perspective, not just the moment. That we're willing to forego some earthly comforts in order to follow the example and leading of our Savior. But you probably noticed I didn't deal with a difficult part of that verse, right? So what does Paul mean when he says that he is, in his flesh, he was filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church? Well, Paul just spent the the last previous uh, eight verses talking about the preeminence of Christ. And so we know that he doesn't mean that there's anything lacking in Christ's atoning death. Christ suffered and satisfied the divine wrath for sin on the cross. It was complete. It was sufficient sacrifice. But I think what Paul meant in that phrase was he was pointed to to the fact that suffering seems to be connected to the expansion and preservation of God's people. So the gospel going out, it seemed to to happen through suffering. As one author uh, wrote, he said, too many times we're quick to avoid situations or alleviate struggles that may be part of God's providential plan for our growth and for the growth of his church. But Jesus uses the suffering of his servants to advance his kingdom to places and people it has never reached. Believing that God, God's plan includes our participation and will inevitably involve sufferings, we can embrace them with joy as we anticipate the consummation of Christ's kingdom. So, As believers, we're able to embrace suffering for the sake of others, for the gospel. And it shows off, I believe, uh, the riches of God's glory because we see the great value of it. Not only for ourselves, but for others, that others might join in that, that joy that we have, join in the benefits of that treasure. So gospel centered ministry displays the riches of God's glory through the suffering for the sake of the gospel. And secondly, for proclaiming the truth of God's word. So Paul then uh, tells them, he wanted them to know uh, that the stewardship that God had given him was to make uh, the message of the gospel known. He embodied Christ as he suffered himself, as he joyfully and willingly suffered for their sake, but then he spoke also of the hope of Christ through the gospel. Verse 25, he says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. 
To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul says he, he was sent to make the word of God fully known. What does he mean? Well, it, it's the message of the gospel was a mystery, Paul says, that had been hidden for ages. And when we hear the word mystery, right, we shouldn't think of like a whodunit. Right? It's, it's not like a, or it's not like mysterious, like weird, right? But it's, it's something that was hidden that has now been revealed. Only, only that it, right? So at the time, it was not fully understood or fully known, but, but in hindsight, we go, oh yeah, that's, that's what it was about. It's a message that we can trace all the way through Scripture. God would make a way to restore the relationship between God and man all the way back to when sin was first broken, all the way back to the garden. So we see it in, in the animal skins that God provided to clothe Adam and Eve, right? Animal skins, sacrificing animals, right? Not that they would die for their sins, but that the animals would in their place. We see it in the promise that God gave to Abraham, that God would make for himself a people, and through Abraham, the nations would be blessed. We see it through the law and Moses, through bringing Israel out of Egypt. All of these things pointed to what God would one day do through Jesus Christ. It's a mystery that's now revealed more fully through Christ. And these riches that, that of God's glory are shown through not just salvation, right, a, a sacrifice that didn't have to be repeated over and over, but sacrifice for the Gentiles. Whoa. Gentiles, like, these were dirty people. These were, these were unclean people. These were people who worshipped idols and, and pagan gods. But through salvation coming to the Gentiles, what do we see? We see that it is all of grace. It's not by birthright. So it wasn't just because people were born of Adam and their descendants. It wasn't through acts of obedience or, or acts of sacrifice. God showed his great mercy in showing that the gospel is for all people, all time. And it's not just a, a, an act of tolerance or a free pass. It came at the cost of Jesus Christ, his own son. He says, Christ in us, right? Christ in us, undeserving sinners, Christ in us, the hope of glory, the hope of future glory for all who believe, fully redeemed, fully reconciled to God made friends with God whom we were at enmity with, fully redeemed, fully of grace. It's, it's really why, as a church, we are so committed to preaching the whole of Scripture because we want to preach the whole of the gospel. Right? It's, it's all throughout the pages of Scripture. And as we go through the, looking at the Old Testament and the New Testament, we begin to get a better sense of who God is and just how glorious he is. Just how much grace is poured throughout all of Scripture and just how wonderful and precious the treasure of the gospel is. Through the whole of Scripture, we see the, the arc of God's story. We see who God is. We see ourselves. But we see ourselves not as heroes, but as undeserving recipients of God's glorious love and mercy. If you guys were here last night at the, the talent night, uh, I told Whitney this morning, I said, well, we are a very Calvinistic church. 
right? And the, the fruit of it is that the, that the songs that were, that were original songs, which were amazing, by the way. I'm looking around for those who have performed them. It was really cool to hear these original songs performed for our church family coming out of here. But man, they, were, they talked about how unworthy we are. We talked about how, they talked about how sinful we are, but how great of grace is that it would save sinners who are completely undeserving. I think that's a fruit of, of truly gospel-centered ministry, of ministry that looks at the whole of Scripture, that teaches the whole of Scripture, not just that we're good and recipients of grace, but that we're bad and we it really is all of grace. So gospel-centered ministry displays the riches of God's glory through suffering for the sake of the gospel, for proclaiming the truth of God's word. And the third point is for proclaiming the transformation of God's people. So we preach God's word not simply to communicate information and how good God is, but also to bring transformation. Paul continues in verse 28. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Truly gospel-centered ministry proclaims the transformation of God's people. Because the aim is to see God's people changed and transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. It's teaching that's centered on Christ, not centered on ourselves and our comfort. It's teaching that is willing to say where we're wrong, where we need to be corrected. Teaching God's truths in this way, right? We have to rely upon wisdom, rely upon God's wisdom to understand how the gospel impacts every area of our lives. If it was simply a matter of getting into heaven, right, we could come here, preach the gospel, and you could go and never think about it again. But God loves us enough to transform us into the likeness of his son. And he does that through the preaching of his word, by the power of his spirit at work in us, Christ in us. And so we do. We warn of the dangers of sin. We warn of the dangers of relying on ourselves. We warn of finding hope and salvation in anything other than Christ. So our aim is maturity in Christ. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like going to God for all our needs. Really, it looks like what we talked about in the children's message, right? Trusting in God to lead us and direct us, to answer our prayers for our good according to his wisdom, fully relying upon God and finding our hope and our treasure in Christ above all else. Problem is, it's not possible. It doesn't matter what's preached up here. It's not possible humanly to preach toward that end if God's not at work. And so Paul says that he works not on his own energy, but once again, relying on Christ. That he toils, struggling with all his energy that that Christ powerfully works within him. And so the teaching that we do, that's why we pray. God, please, please be at work in the teaching. And he, we pray that God would be at work in each of us in the, uh, as recipients. That God would do his work to change and transform us into the likeness of his son, right? Because the reality is, like, none of us like to be told what to do. And none of us like to be told that we're wrong. 
So imagine, right? You just came here just to find out everything you did wrong. Be told what to do. None of us would come back. But the fact that God is at work in each believer, changing and transforming us, allows us to humbly sit under the teaching of the gospel so that we too would be changed more and more into the likeness of Christ. And that's the center of gospel-centered ministry. Gospel-centered ministry proclaims the transforming of God's, transformation of God's people. One more point. Gospel transformation, I'm sorry, gospel-centered ministry displays the riches of God's glory through suffering for the sake of the gospel, for proclaiming the truth of God's word, proclaiming the transformation of God's people, and finally, for uniting believers in love around the treasure of God's truth. There's nothing that transforms us more than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing that unites us more genuinely with other believers than the gospel of Christ. Right? Our, our Savior unites us with one together, uh, uh, with believers, in a bond that is stronger than, than any uh, family tie, stronger than our ethnicity ties us to one another, our nationality, our political affiliations. It's stronger than our favorite sports teams, stronger than the bond that we, that we have over maybe the schools that we went to. It bonds us closer than even whether we attend or send our kids to public school or private school or home school. Right? Those things, people tend to, to gather around those other other things that bond them together, but, but none of those are as strong as the gospel. It was the work of the gospel that united Paul to these believers, believers that he'd never met face to face, believers that Paul was then willing and joyful to, to joyfully suffer for, to labor for, to bring encouragement to them, and to call them brothers and sisters. So, Looking at the, the text, uh, verse 1 in chapter 2, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom, we, uh, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So what was the fruit that Paul uh, was seeking to encourage? Well, he wants their hearts to be first knit together in love. And the word that Paul uses for knit together, uh, it's the same word that he'll use in uh, chapter 2, verse 19, to describe how the body is held together. So think about how your body and your joints are held together. Pretty tight, pretty intimate. One commentator actually said that the word can be translated as welded together. Think about how strong that is. And so Paul links being knit together in love, being welded together in love with growing in the knowledge of God and assurance of faith and understanding. So think about that, that imagery uh, for a moment, right? Think about like love welding us together as believers, standing shoulder, and shoulder, shoulder to shoulder in the faith, supporting one another, strengthening one another, encouraging one another, teaching and correcting one another, growing together in wisdom as we explore and mine God's glorious treasures of wisdom and knowledge from God's word, and being united together in love around the treasure of God's truth. I think that image 
of us as believers welded together in love and, and growing together in Christ, it's strong. And it's, it's much stronger. We can easily imagine how much stronger it is than the image of a person standing who alone, isolated and divided. The lone Christian. No accountability, right? no community. That strength is why we, as a church, emphasize and, and so encourage everyone in our church to be involved in growth groups. Right? So if you're 13 years up and older, we want you to be involved in a growth group. And it could be the newcomers group. It could be one of the other growth groups that meets throughout the week. But it's a place where we gather together in small groups. And what do we do? We study God's word together. We get to know one another. We grow together in our love for God and others. It's a place where we can ask questions, get to know what God's word says on a deeper level. It's community centered on Christ. It's gospel-centered community. And it brings glory to God because the primary thing that binds us together is the thing that we treasure most. And that's Jesus Christ. Right? We, we don't come together because we're all fans of this sports team or, or we all school our kids this way or, or that thing. No, we come together because we treasure Christ and we want to grow into Christ's likeness. So being united together in love with believers helps to encourage and strengthen us in that faith, that thing that we say is most important to us. It does one other thing, Paul says. Verse 4, he says that it, it also helps to guard us against false teaching. Verse 4, he says, I say this, all that he said, right, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good work, your good order, and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Think about that, right? There is no greater desire that you or I should have in our lifetimes than to remain firm in our faith in Christ. Like to end the race well. And a community of believers helps us to do that. God gives us community for that purpose. Right? Because when we're alone, we're, we're vulnerable to things like plausible arguments. It's the word that, uh, the phrase that Paul uses. The community of the church and of local believers, right, who are they? Right, they're the people who know you. They know your weaknesses. They know your tendencies. They know where you tend to fall off the tracks. They also know the context that you're in, right, because they're in it with you. And we can help one another to see things as they truly are, The reason why it's so important is because plausible arguments, right, what, what Paul talks about here, we need to remember that plausible arguments are plausible. Right? They're, they're believable. Right? They're not like my brother coming and telling me that he'll, he'll give me eight pennies for three dimes. He's like, well, you're just a dumb kid. It's true, but guess what? We're all dumb in some way. And you know who's smarter is Satan. He's been around a little bit longer than we have. And so the arguments that are put forward are plausible to us because in the faith, we are much, much younger. They make sense, right? They appeal to our sense of self, who we are and what we want, our sense of right and wrong, our sense of justice. Right? 
Isn't that what, what the serpent did to Eve? Look at that fruit. I mean, that fruit is pleasing to the eyes, don't you think? Well, yeah, I guess it is. In Russ Duthat's book, Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics, he talks about how the false teachings that have gripped America over all of these years all seem to come from people trying to make sense of things. There are difficult things, and so people come up with plausible arguments. And it's how cults come about, right? Whether they're trying to make sense of the suffering that they're experiencing or understanding the difficulties of a, a passage, or, or maybe the culture around them and, and why it seems to be going a different way, or why we aren't going with them, people lose sight of God's riches and glory because they lose sight of the gospel. The riches of the glory of God are not diminished, but put on greater display as we suffer for the sake of the gospel, as we proclaim the truth of God's word, as we proclaim the transformation of God's people, as we unite together in love around the treasure of God's truth. So God places us in community so that we'll remind one another when we forget what is most important and so that we'll be willing to sacrifice for those that we love and we'll remember that it's God's word that is the foundation of what we believe and of our very lives and so that we won't forget the greatest a description of the gospel I think that Paul has in here and that is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Not, not just Christ in the church, not just Christ in some of those other people, but Christ in you. That is the hope of glory. Think about that. Christ in you. There's no greater treasure. And so for it and for the sake of others, in our gospel-centered ministry, I pray that we will be willing to suffer for others, for the sake of the gospel. I, I pray that we will be willing to always proclaim the truth, even when it hurts, and that we will proclaim the transformation of God's people, that we'll, we'll never let one another just sit and not grow in Christ, but we'll always be striving to become more like the one that we love so deeply, and that we will find ourselves united together in love, true love, love that encourages and strengthens around the treasure of God's truth. Let us pray. Gracious Father, your word is glorious because it shows us Christ who is more glorious. I pray that you would give us eyes to see the great treasure of the gospel because through the gospel, you've given us your son, Jesus Christ. And so Father, I, I pray that you would indeed help us as a community to grow together, to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, and to hold fast together. Father, we want Christ to be made much of, both in and through us. So I pray that you would do that. Christ alone, for the glory of God. In his name we pray, amen.